Chapter Sixteen of Marie Antoinette and Her Son by Louise Malbach. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maggie Travers in Columbia, Tennessee. Chapter Sixteen in Saint Cloud. The winter was past, a sad, dismal winter for the royal family, and for Marie Antoinette in particular. None of those festivities, those diversions, those simple and innocent joys which are wont to adorn the life of a woman and of a queen. Marie Antoinette is no more a queen who commands, who sees around her a throng of respectful courtiers, zealously listening to every word that falls from her lips. Marie Antoinette is a grave, solitary woman, who works much, thinks much, makes many plans for saving the kingdom and the throne, and sees all these plans shipwrecks on the indecision and weakness of her husband. Far away from the queen lay those happy times when every day brought new joys and new diversions, when the dawn of a summer morning made the queen happy, because it promised her a delightful evening, and one of those charming idols at Trion. The brothers of the king, the schoolmaster and mayor of Trion, had left France and had located themselves at Coblenz on the Rhine. The Pognacs had fled to England. The princess Lamballe, too, had, at the wish of the queen, gone to negotiate with Pitt in order to implore the all-powerful minister of Georges III to give to the oppressed French crown more material and effectual support than was afforded by the angry and bitter words which he hurled in Parliament against the riotous and rebellious French nation. The Counts de Benzeval and Coignet, the Marquis de Luzon, and the Baron de Ahimar, all the privileged friends of the summer days at Trion and the winter days at Versailles, all, all were gone. They had fled to Coblenz, and were at the court of the French princes. There they spun their intrigues, sought to excite a European war against France. From there they hurled their flaming torches into France, their colonies against Queen Marie Antoinette, the Austrian woman. She alone was accountable for all the misfortunes and the disturbances of France. She alone had given occasion for the distrust now felt against royalty. On her fell the curse and the burden of all the faults and sins which the French court had for a hundred years committed. There must be a sacrificial lamb, to be thrown into the arms glistening with spears and daggers, of a revolution which thirsted for blood and vengeance and Marie Antoinette had to be the victim. In her bleeding heart the spirits glowing with hate might cool themselves, and there the evil which her predecessors had done was to be atoned for. Many a wrong had been done, and the French nation had, no doubt, a right to be angry and to rage as does the lion for a long time kept in subjection, when at last, touched too much by the iron of its keeper, it rises in its wildness, and with withering greed tears him in pieces, from whom it has suffered so long and so much. The French people rose just as the incensed lion does, and determined to wreak their vengeance on their keepers, on those whom they had so long called their lords and rulers. To pacify the lion, some prey must be thrown to him, and to him who thirsts for vengeance and blood, a human offering must be brought to propitiate him. Marie Antoinette had to be the offering to the lion. Her blood had to flow for the sins of the Bourbons. 
on her all the anger the exasperation the rage of the people must concentrate she must bear the blame of all the miseries and the needs of france she must satisfy the hunger for vengeance in order that when the lion is appeased it can be made placable and patient again the chains put on which he has broken in his rage the chains however to which when his rage is past he must again submit the queen the queen is to blame for all marie antoinette has brought royalty into discredit the austrian woman has brought the hatred of the french nation upon herself and she must atone for it she alone libels and calumnies are forged against the queen by those who were once the friends and cavaliers of the queen cavaliers no longer but cavillers now the poisoned arrows are sent to france to be directed against the head of the queen to destroy first her honor and good name and then to make her prey for scorn and contempt if the lion stills his rage and cools his hate with marie antoinette as his victim he will relax again and bow to his king for it is time for these royal princes to return to france and their loved paris once more the count de provence is the implacable enemy of the queen he can never forgive her for gaining the heart of the king her husband and leaving no influence for his wise clever brother the count de provence is avaricious and crafty he sees that an abyss has opened before the throne of the lilies and that it will not close again it must therefore be filled up a reconciliation will not be possible in a natural way and artificial methods must be found to accomplish it louis the fifteenth will not be saved and marie antoinette shall not be the two perhaps can fill up the abyss that yawns between the throne of the lilies and the french people they perhaps may fill it up and then a way may be made for the count de provence the successor of his brother the count d'artois was once the friend of the queen the only one of the royal family who wished her well and who defended her sometimes against the hatred of the royal aunts and sisters-in-law and the crafty brother but while living in coblentz the count d'artois had become the embittered enemy of marie antoinette he had heard it so often said on all sides that the queen by her levity her extravagance and her intrigues was the cause of all that she alone had brought about the revolution that he at last believed it and turned angrily against the royal woman whose worst offence in the eyes of the prince lay in this that she had been the occasion of his enforced exile to coblentz and marie antoinette knew all these intrigues which were forged by the prince in coblentz against herself knew about all the calumnies that were set in circulation there she read the libels and pamphlets which the storm-wind of revolution shook from the dry tree of monarchy like withered autumn leaves and scattered through all france that they might be everywhere found and read they will kill me she would often say with a sigh after reading these pamphlets steeped with hate and written in blood yes they will kill me but with me they will kill the king and the monarchy too the revolution will triumph over us all and hurl us all down together into the grave 
but still she would make efforts to control the revolution and restore the monarchy again out of its humiliations. The Emperor Joseph II, brother of the Queen, once said of himself, I am a royalist, because that is my business. Marie Antoinette was a royalist, not because it was her business. She was a royalist by conviction, a royalist in her soul, her mind, and her inmost nature. For this she would defend the monarchy. For this she would contend against the revolution until she should either constrain it to terms or be swallowed up in it. All her efforts, all her cares were directed only to this, to kindle in the king the same courage that animated her, to stir him with the same fire that burned in her soul. But alas, Louis the Fifteenth was no doubt a good man and a kind father, but he was no king. He had no doubt the wish to restore the monarchy, but he lacked the requisite energy and strong will. Instead of controlling the revolution with a fiery spirit, he sought to consolate it by concession and mild measures. Instead of checking it, he himself went down before it. But Marie Antoinette could not, and would not give up hope. As the king would not act, she would act for him. As he would not take part in politics, she would do so for him. With glowing zeal she plunged into business, spent many hours each day with the ministers and dependents of the court, corresponded with foreign lands, with her brother the Emperor Leopold, and with her sister, Queen Caroline of Naples, wrote to them in a cipher intelligible only to them, and sent the letters through the hands of secret agents, imploring of them assistance and help for the monarchy. In earnest labor, in unrelieved care and business, the queen's days now passed. She sang, she laughed no more. Dress had no longer charms for her, she had no more conferences with Mademoiselle Mbertin, her milliner. Her hairdresser, Monsieur Leonard, had no more calls upon his genius for new coiffures for her fair hair. A simple, dark dress. That was the toilette of the queen. A lace handkerchief round the neck, and a feather was her only headdress. Once she had rejoiced in her beauty, and smiled at the flatteries which her mirror told her when it reflected her face. Now she looked with indifference at her pale, worn face, with its sharp gray features, and it awoke no wonder within her when the mirror told her that the Queen of France, in spite of her thirty-six years, was old, that the roses on her cheeks had withered, and that care had drawn upon her brow those lines which age could not yet have done. She did not grieve over her lost beauty. She looked with complacency at the matron of six and thirty years, whose beautiful hair showed the traces of that dreadful night in October. She had her picture painted, in order to send it to London, to the truest of her friends, the Princess Lamballe, and with her own hand she wrote beneath it the words, Your sorrows have whitened your hair. And yet... In this life full of cares, full of work, full of pain and humiliation, in these sad days of trouble and resignation, there were single gleams of sunshine, scattered moments of happiness. 
It was a ray of sunshine when this sad winter in the Tuileries was passed, and the States General allowed the royal family to go to St. Cloud and spend the summer there. Certainly, it was a new humiliation for the king to receive permission to reside in his own summer palace of St. Cloud. But the States General called themselves the pillars of the throne, and the king who sat upon this shaking throne was very dependent upon its support. In St. Cloud there were at least a little freedom, a little solitude and stillness. The birds sang in the foliage, the sun lighted up the broad halls of the palace, in which a few faithful ones gathered around the queen, and recalled at least a touch of the past happiness to her brow. In St. Cloud she was again the queen. She held her court there. But how different was this from the court of former days! No merry laughter, no cheerful singing resounded through these spacious halls. No pleasant ladies in light, airy, summer costume swept through the fragrant apartments. Monsieur de Adamar no longer sits at the spinet, and sings with his rich voice the beautiful arias from the opera Richard of the Lionheart, in which royalty had its apiothis, and in which the singer Garat had excited all Paris to the wildest demonstrations of delight. And not all Paris, but Versailles as well, and in Versailles the royal court. Louis Fifteenth himself had been in rapture at the aria which Garat sang with his flexible tenor voice in so enchanting a manner. O oh, Richard! O oh, mon roi! An aria which had once procured him a triumph in the very theatre. For when Garat began this air with his full voice, and every countenance was directed to the box where the royal family were sitting, the whole theatre rose, and the hundreds upon hundreds present had joined in the loud, jubilant strains, O oh, Richard, O oh, Monroy. Louis the Fifteenth was grateful to the spirited singer, who, in that stormy time, had the courage to publicly offer him homage, and he had therefore acceded to the request of the queen, that Garat should be invited to the private concerts of the Queen of Versailles, and give her instruction on those occasions in the art of singing. Marie Antoinette thought of those pleasant days of the past, as she sat in the still deserted music-room, where the instrument stood silent by the wall, where there were no hands to entice the cheerful melodies from the strings, as there had once been. "'I wish that I had never sung duets with Garotte,' whispered the queen to herself. "'The king allowed me, but yet I ought not to have done it. A queen has no right to be free, merry, and happy. A queen can practice the fine arts only alone, and in the silence of her own apartments. I would that I had never sung with Garotte. She sat down before the spinet and opened it. Her fingers glided softly over the keys, and for the first time, in long months of silence, the room resounded with the tones of music. But alas, it was no cheerful music which the fingers of the queen drew from the keys. It was only the notes of pain, only cries of grief, and yet they recalled the happy bygone times, those golden, blessed days when the Queen of France was the friend of the arts, and when she received her early teacher, the great maestro and chevalier Cluck in Versailles, when she took sides for him against the Italian maestro Lully, 
and when all Paris divided into two parties, the Glockist and the Lulliest, waging a bloodless war against each other. Happy Paris! At that time the interest of art alone busied all spirits, and the battle of opinions was conducted only with a pen. Gluck owed it to the mighty influence of the queen that his opera, Alcestes, was brought upon the stage. But at its first representation the Lulius gained the victory and condemned it. In despair, Gluck left the opera house, driven by hisses into the darkest street. A friend followed him and detained him as he was hurrying away, and spoke in the gentlest tones. But Gluck interrupted him with wild violence. "'Oh, my friend!' cried he, falling on the neck of him who was expressing his kindly sympathy. "'Alcestes has fallen!' But his friend pressed his hand and said, "'Fallen? Yes, Alcestes has fallen. It has fallen from heaven!' The queen thought of this as she sat before the spinet, thought how moved Gluck was when he related this answer of his friend, and that he, who had been so kind, was the Duc de Aramar. She had thanked him for this gracious word by giving him her hand to kiss, and Adamar, kneeling, had pressed his lips to her hand. And that was the same Baron Adamar, who was now at Coblenz, assisting the prince to forge libels against herself, and who was himself the author of that shameless lampoon which ridiculed the musical studies of the queen, and even the duet which she had sung with Garat. Softly gliding her fingers over the keys, softly flowed over her pale sunken cheeks two great tears, tears which she shed as she thought of the past, tears full of bitterness and pain. But no, no, she would not weep. She shook the tears from her eyes and struck the keys with a more vigorous touch. Away, away those recollections of ingratitude and faithlessness. Art shall engage her thoughts in the music-room, and to Gluck and Alicestes the hour belongs. The queen struck the keys more firmly and began to play the noble Love's Complaint of Gluck's opera. Unconsciously her lips opened, and with loud voice and intense passionate expression she sang the words, O crudel, non pense en verre, tu le suis, senza dete. At the first notes of this fine voice the door in the rear of the room had lightly opened, the one leading to the garden, and the curly head of the dauphin was thrust in. Behind him were Madame de Tourzel and Madame Elisabeth, who, like the prince, were listening in breathless silence to the singing of the queen. As she ended, and when the voice of Marie Antoinette was choked in a sigh, the dauphin flew in, extended arms across the hall to his mother. "'Mama Queen!' cried he, beaming with joy. "'Are you singing again? I thought my dear mamma had forgotten how to sing, but she has begun to sing again, and we are all happy once more. Marie Antoinette folded the little fellow in her arms and did not contradict him, and nodded smilingly to the two ladies, who now approached and begged the queen's pardon for yielding to the pressing desires of the dauphin and entering without permission. Oh, mamma, dear mamma queen, said the prince in the most caressing way, I have been very industrious today, 
the abbey was satisfied with me and praised me because i wrote well and learned my arithmetic well won't you give me a reward for that mamma queen what sort of reward do you want my child asked the queen smiling say first that you will give it well yes i will give it my little louis now tell me what it is mamma queen i want you to sing your little louis a song and he added nodding at the two ladies that you allowed these friends of mine to hear it well my child i will sing for you answered marie antoinette and our good friend shall hear it the countenance of the boy beamed with pleasure with alacrity he rolled an easy chair up to the piano and took his seat in it in the most dignified manner madame elizabeth seated herself near him on a tabouret and madame de Trouzel leaned on the back of the dauphin's chair now sing mamma now sing asked the dauphin marie antoinette played a prelude and as her eyes fell upon the group they lighted up with joy and then turned upward to god with a look of thankfulness a few minutes before she had felt alone and sad she had thought of absent friends and bitter pain and now as if fate would remind her of the happiness which still remained to her it sent her the son and the sister-in-law both of whom loved her so tenderly and the gentle and affectionate madame de Trezel, whom marie antoinette knew to be faithful and constant unto death the flatterers and courtiers the court ladies and cavaliers are no longer in the music-room the enraptured praises are no longer accompanying the songs of the queen but out of the easy-chair in which the duchess de polignac had sat so often now looks the beautiful blonde face of her son and his beaming countenance speaks more eloquently to her than the flatteries of friends on the tabouret now occupied by her sister-in-law madame elizabeth de dillion has often sat the handsome dillion with his glowing admiring looks have often perhaps in spite of his own will said more to the queen than she allowed herself to understand and as her heart thrilled in sweet pain and secret raptures under those glances how pure and innocent is the face which now looks out from this chair the face of an angel who bears god in his heart and on his countenance pray for me pray that god may let me drink of lethe that i may forget all that has ever been pray that i may be satisfied with what remains and that my heart may now in humility and patience thus thought the queen as she began to sing not one of her great arias which she had studied with garat and which the court used to applaud but one of those lovely little songs full of feeling and melody which did not carry one away in admiration but which filled the heart with joy and deep emotion with suspended breath and great eyes directed fixedly to marie antoinette the dauphin listened but gradually his eyes fell and motionless and with grave face the child sat in his armchair marie antoinette saw it and began to sing one of those cradle songs of the children's friend which burqueen had written and Graytree had set to music so charmingly how still was it in the music-room how full and touching was the voice of the queen as she began the last verse o oh, sleep my child now so to sleep 
the crying grieves my heart. Thy mother, child, has cause to weep, but sleep and feel no smart. All was still in the music room when the last words were sung. Motionless, with downcast eyes, sat the Dauphine long after the sad voice of the queen had ceased. Ah, see, cried Madame Elizabeth with a smile, I believe now our Louis has fallen asleep. But the child quickly raised his head and looked at the smiling young princess with a reproachful glance. Ah, my dear aunt, cried he reprovingly, how could any one sleep when mamma sings? Marie Antoinette drew the child within her arms, and her countenance beamed with delight. Never had the queen received so grateful a compliment from the most flattering courtier as these words of her fair-haired boy conveyed, who threw his arms around her neck and nestled up to her. The queen of France is still a rich, enviable woman, for she has children who love her. The queen of France ought not to look without courage into the future, for the future belongs to her son. The throne which now is so tottering and insecure shall one day belong to him, the darling of her heart, and therefore must his mother struggle with all her power and with all the means at her command, contend for the throne for the Dauphine of France, that he may receive the inheritance of his father intact, and that his throne may not in the future plunge down into the abyss which the revolution has opened. No, the Dauphine, Louis Charles, shall not then think reproachfully of his parents. He shall not have cause to complain that through want of spirit and energy they have imperiled or lost the sacred heritage of his fathers. No, Queen Marie Antoinette may not halt and lose courage, not even when her husband has done so, and when he is prepared to humbly bow his sacred head beneath that yoke of revolution which the heroes and orators selected by the nation have wished to put upon his neck in the name of France. This makes her a double duty, to be active, to plan and work, to keep her head erect and look with searching eye in all directions to see whence help and deliverance are to come. Not from without can they come, not from foreign monarchs, nor from the exiled princes. Foreign armies which might march into the country would place the king, who had summoned them to fight with his own people, in the light of a traitor. And the moment that they should pass the frontiers of France, the wrath of the nation would annihilate the royal couple. Only from those who had called down the danger could help come. The chiefs of the revolution, the men who had raised their threatening voices against the royal couple, must be won over to become the advocates of royalty. And who was more powerful, who was more conspicuous among all these chiefs of the revolutions and all the orators of the National Assembly than Count Meribu? When he ascended the Speaker's tribune of the National Assembly, all were silent and even his opponents listened with respectful attention to his words, which found an echo through all France when he spoke. When from his lips the thunder of his speeches resounded, the lightning flashed in his eyes, and his head was like the head of a lion, who, with the shaking of his mane and the power of his anger, destroyed everything which dared to put itself in his way. 
and the French nation loved this lion, and listened in reverential silence to the thunder of his speech, and the throne shook before him. And the excitable populace shouted with admiration whenever they saw the lion, and deified that Count Mirabeau, who, with his powerful, lace-cuffed hand, had thrust these words into the face of his own caste, they have done nothing more than to give themselves the trouble to be born. The people loved this aristocrat, who was abhorred by his family and the men of his own rank. This count, whom the nobility hated because the third estate loved him. End of chapter 16. Recording by Maggie Travers, Columbia, Tennessee.